Welcome to episode 106 of Junk Filter. My name is Jesse Hawken, and my returning guest is a PhD researcher, a writer at Movie, Film International, Senses of Cinema, and Bright Lights Film Journal. He's the author of Time is Luck, The Cinema of Michael Mann. Joining me from Southampton, England, James Slaymaker, welcome back to Junk Filter. Hi, Jesse. Great to be here talking about another radical experimental filmmaker. Junk Filter's been doing a series on the films of Michael Mann. Our previous episodes on Heat and Thief are available now on the Junk Filter Patreon feed, and you can go to patreon.com slash junkfilter to hear these and many more bonus episodes. But this episode is about what I think is his best film, 1999's The Insider, starring Al Pacino and Russell Crowe. James, this is my very favorite Michael Mann movie, and I saw it on opening night when it came out. I went to a late show of the movie in a packed house, and it was a fantastic cinema experience. You go public and 30 million people hear what you gotta say, nothing, I mean nothing, will ever be the same again. Now the work we did here is confidential, not for public scrutiny, any more than our one's family matters. We're very serious about protecting our interests. He's got something to say. He wants to say it. I want it on 60 Minutes. Maybe for the audience, it's just voyeurism, something to do on a Sunday night. And maybe it won't change a thing. And people like myself and my family are left hung out to dry, used up, alone. What does this guy have to say? I don't be paranoid, Jeff. That threatens these people. That isn't cigarettes are bad for you. Who is this? One thing that hasn't really been talked about with The Insider is um, all the things that it's saying feel like a warning from the past about what's going to happen in the future. Yep. So I, I want to talk about that a little bit. Like it's very that quaint. sounds interesting. It's very quaint, for instance, that uh, this movie is so dependent on people talking on the phone. Yeah. <laughs> this is like a pre-internet phase. And in fact, one of the corniest things about the movie is when the internet comes up, like, oh, we got an email. And you see this yeah. like envelope floating around and then <laughs> this text comes up <laughs> that says we're going to kill you. <laughs> like, Yeah, the fax machine as well when Bergman first contacts them. <laughs> and and also how what a great filmmaker man is that he can make a nerve-wracking scene out of people sending yeah. faxes to each other. <laughs> well, he made Black Hat, which is one of the most nerve-wracking films ever. And most of it is people sitting at a computer typing. Yeah. And the hero and the antagonist don't even meet until the final 50 minutes <laughs> amazing i have to finish watching black hat i wasn't into it but i know that it has uh fans and maybe you're it's, one of them for my money it is michael mann's best film i've come around to thinking that now oh wow i realize that's very controversial still i think it's the culmination of every single thematic and formal preoccupation he's had since the jericho mall and I think that if he, even if he never released another feature again, it would be a good career capper. And to start off the show, I'm going to ask you about your relationship to Michael Mann and how you came across The Insider. So when I was a teenager, I kind of repudiated most American cinema, and I just got really into the, like, the European giants, like the French New Wave. Apart from the silent greats of American cinema, I didn't really view... Hollywood is having a particularly fruitful or impactful or politically astute output. This was when I was like 13 to about, I'd say 18 or 19. So I was a bit naive and had a very contrarian stance to what like my media teachers were telling us were great. 
and what I was reading was great and all of like the mainstream of film magazines and newspapers. So it I didn't really take a lot of notice of man. I saw Heat when I was quite young. I think I was maybe 11 or 12, and I liked it for what it was, but I didn't really see a lot of experimentation or a lot of like sociological analysis in there. I thought, this is a well-crafted genre piece. And then when I got more into the world of online criticism and film journalism, especially the younger generation, so sites like Reverse Shot, like Mubai, uh, like Cinemascope, I started reading these critical reappraisals of man, particularly around the time of the release of Public Enemies. And I was reading just critics claiming massive things about him, like that he was a great uh, expressionist, that he was crafting this incredible countercultural political ideology within the frameworks of Hollywood genre pieces. And I was very skeptical at first, but I thought I'd check him out just for the sake of completism. <clears throat> so I rewatched Miami Vice again. Uh, I'd, I'd seen Miami Vice when it came out, but it just like flew over my head. I wasn't really even really paying attention when I saw it, but I watched it again and I at first was struck by purely how sensual the images were. The HD really crisp digital images of just the water and the bodies and how close the camera was to the faces. And the hyper-compressed editing that impressed me to a certain extent. But I just left feeling fairly cold still. I didn't feel like there was really any emotional drive. I didn't think it was saying anything about America, really. That was particularly novel. Then I think what really tipped me over was a few years later when I saw his sight and sound ballot. And I saw him talking really, really intelligently about Eisenstein and Battleship Potemkin and talking about the clash of dialectical elements and how it was the center of Eisenstein's political vision. And I just read that and I thought, this guy clearly has a stronger grasp of cinema history and of political filmmaking than I've been giving him credit for. So I started reading a bit more about him and I started reading about like his early films, which were documentaries about the May 68 riots in Paris and a documentary about the IRA. And it's really changed my view of him. And so I thought, I'm going to go back to some of his films with a more open mind. Like, I'm not going to be so willing to reject them because they're coming from this Hollywood background and they're made within the bowels of industrial cinema. I was also reading a lot about just his general fandom of Eisenstein and Bertolt and a lot of those filmmakers and just thinking maybe he is trying to apply these kinds of principles but within narrative American cinema. Mm -hmm. um, this was also around the same time I was starting to appreciate filmmakers like Abel Ferrara and Brian De Palma and Martin Scorsese a lot more so. Becoming more welcoming of just the idea of subverting American cinema from within. Although I don't think man was quite as in your face as those filmmakers are. Like if you watch a Brian the Palmer film like Body Double, you immediately see 
okay, he's taking these recognizable genre formats and tropes and he's turning them on the head. He's making them toxic. He's making them vulgar to an insane degree. And he's causing the spectators to reflect on their own strategies, which I didn't see in Man because Man doesn't work on the level of parody and he doesn't work on the level of irony. So it was less easy for me to see that. But reading about Man's background, also his experience in a London film school with a lot of experimental filmmakers. Um, and there was an interview around the time, I think around the release of The Keep, where he was saying that he didn't want to go to an American film school because he was worried they were going to teach him to film in the Hollywood style. So he decided to go for a European one. With that in mind, I went back to his filmography and I watched Miami Vice and Public Enemies again. And it's just unlocked for me watching it then knowing about his admiration for these filmmakers and his state of ambitions. And I started to see just how covertly he fits these subversive messages and these really radical formal ideas into these movies. And the subtle ways he undermined genre and genre expectations. And so I went through a couple of months where I thought, okay, the digital stuff is good, but everything preceding the digital is just a warm-up. But then I saw Black Hat in 2015, and it completely blew my mind. I thought that there was the best film of the year. I thought it was possibly the greatest film ever made about the internet and about espionage in the age of uh, uh, pervasive digital culture. And at that point, I was finally ready to just call myself like 100% man-pilled, if, you, if you'll forgive <laughs> the expression. <laughs> But so after that, I was like, okay, this man is a master of the form. He's doing things that no other filmmaker is doing in America or anywhere else. I'm going to watch his entire filmography in order. And so I went back and I watched Thief and I watched uh, The Keep. I watched Lost of the Mohicans again, which I then loved. And I watched Heat and I loved all of them. So The Insider was the last man film I saw because I'd watched all of the digital work then all of the celluloid work in order. And The Insider really struck me because I think that it's possibly the film where he expresses his political worldview most explicitly. I feel like Miami Vice and Public Enemies and Black Hat, the political critique is more integrated into the visual style and the actions of the characters, so it's more easy to overlook, whereas The Insider is something of a thesis film in his over. It's the film I'd say that if you want to unlock the politics of Michael Mann, it's the one to go to. Mann is so good at depicting the process of, of, of his protagonists, their professionalism and their dedication to their craft, and, and the seriousness by which they measure... Uh, themselves and their own excellence. And, and this is a movie about two different kinds of people who are experts and, and professionals who are also diametrically opposed to one another in terms of the culture. When Michael Mann uh, cast Al Pacino to play Lowell Bergman, who was one of the producers at 60 Minutes, he wanted to give Al Pacino a role that he had never played before in a movie, which he described as an intellectual worker. So it's very interesting that you talk about the parallels between these two characters because they are absolutely brilliant at what they do, but they're both in a corporate environment which doesn't allow them to be what they should be. 
So Wigand wants to dedicate himself to the uh, health and intellectual benefit of the American public, but his job as a researcher at Brown and Williamson explicitly requires him to do the opposite. When he warns his bosses at the company that the practices they're using to uh, boost up the level of nicotine in cigarettes is going to cause mass public health issues, he's told that he has to hide the evidence and never let anyone know. So his job is the exact opposite of what he wants to do. His job is to help the CEOs of Brown and Williamson hide from the public information which could be beneficial to them. And so Wigand, when he refuses to do this, he's let go from the company with a very spurious reasoning. And it's interesting how at the beginning of the film, we see Wigand leave the company because he's realized that he can't flourish there. Because this is the emotional journey that Bergman will go through um, over the course of the film. And it's an interesting visual parallel that at the beginning, we see Wigand quit the company through the glass revolving door. And then the very final image of the film is Bergman doing the same thing. So Bergman really ends up at the exact place where Wigand begins in the narrative. Bergman has an incredible amount of faith in CBS and what he recall, what he calls the authority and objectivity of the news reportage at CBS. Although Bergman comes from this background of radical journalism, he thinks that CBS is merely a neutral platform he can use to express these beliefs and that he can speak truth to power through this broadcasting structure. And he doesn't think about the fact that CBS is a massive, massive corporation with so many shareholders and so many ties to different businesses, and that that is inevitably going to shape what they do and what they do not broadcast. And so when he meets uh, Wigand, it's interesting that Wigand is very, very skeptical of him, but Bergman is 100% confident. There's the really, really interesting conversation they have at the Japanese restaurant where Bergman is insisting to Wigand that he must put his testimony out on CBS and he must do it in an unfiltered manner because CBS will simply air whatever he wants to say. And Wigand is just squinting at him and saying, aren't I just something to put on in between commercials for you? Aren't I just becoming a commodity to the CEOs of CBS? And won't I just be a warped image you can use to make money from? But Bergman doesn't see things that way. He sees his role at CBS as being completely noble. And in a similar way to Wigand, to um, serving the intellectual interests of the American public. Mm. And I want to talk about that scene with you. That's one of the most significant moments in the movie. I mean, you could make the facile comparison between the coffee shop scene in Heat and the Japanese restaurant scene in The Insider. But we have to talk a little bit about the determination of man's visual style and the way that he sort of implants ideas in your head that come through later in the film. During that scene, he significantly breaks one of the most important rules in filmmaking, which is the 180 degree axis rule. That means 
that it, when two people sit down, one guy's always on the left of the screen, the other guy's always on the right of the screen. So for visual coherence, if you're going to break that axis, you have to move the camera around that line and then you can uh, do the rest of the scene. And a lot of filmmakers, when they want to drive a point home uh, of the scene, they will have a shot where the camera swings around to show a, a change in status between two characters. But there's a jarring cut during this conversation where all of a sudden... Russell Crowe, who's always been on the left of the shot, is on the right. And Pacino, who's always been on the right of the shot, is on the left. And this is the moment where Wygand asserts some kind of control over the scene and drops ideas in our heads. What he's saying may be passed off by Bergman as Wygand being cynical and paranoid. But uh, 90 minutes later in the movie, what Wygand says to Bergman and by extension to us in the movie happens. Wygand says to him, do you believe that? You believe because you get information out to people, something happens? And that's where we cut to the 180 axis break. And then we go back to the original layout of the of the conversation. But Wygand is saying at this point, maybe that's what you've been telling yourself all these years to justify having a good job. And maybe it won't change a fucking thing. And people like myself and my family are left hung out to dry, used up, broke. Bergman takes this as Wygand sort of... Uh, refusing for his own ego to go along with this, like, I know better than you about how the media works. But in fact, that's exactly what happens. Bergman's idea of his own importance is undermined. And Bergman is talking to Wigand about working for Big Tobacco. And he says, you work for a sales culture. You're not really in public health and serving the public interests. When you're working at Big Tobacco, you're in a sales culture. But Bergman finds out the hard way when his segment with Wigand is basically sanitized and censored by CBS corporate, that he also works in a sales culture. Absolutely. And I definitely think that there is an arrogance and there is a blindness about Bergman, which doesn't become really apparent until Wigand's interview risks being censored by CBS. At first, the relationship between Wigand and Bergman appears as being very much a mentor-mentee relationship where Bergman is the expert on the media, on how information gets spread, and Wigand is this outsider who can't quite comprehend and his anxieties are somewhat overblown. But Wigand definitely understands better than Bergman that media and corporations like Big Tobacco, they work in the same way and they're beholden to the same financial interests. There's a very uh, fascinating scene later on where Bergman is talking to the legal team at CBS and he, he says, uh, we're the news part of CBS. You're the corporate part of CBS. Why are you telling us what to do? Why are you even in this building? And one of the lawyers says to him, we're all CBS. Like CBS corporate and CBS news can't be differentiated in that way. Which underlines how Bergman is blind to his function within the corporation and how the corporation really deals out the news and how it manipulates the news and how it doesn't enlighten public opinion, it sways public opinion. It's there to reinforce hegemonic structures. I think that at the end, even though Wigand's testimony makes it to the airwaves, it's not because no one in charge of CBS think has an epiphany and thinks, no, the public must know this. It's because they're attacked 
by the New York Times and the Washington Post, and they think, okay, the only way to save face and to put across the image that we're not sellouts is we have to finally air this testimony. It's because they're revealed to have bought in to the scare tactics employed by Big Tobacco, and because the mechanisms by which they manufactured this smear campaign is made public by rival news corporations, that they're strong-armed into finally putting Wigan on the air. And so Bergman, he doesn't, at the end, say, okay, CBS can be reformed from within or anything like that. He says to Mike Wallace, I have to leave because what happened here doesn't get put back together again. He doesn't have any confidence in his ability to thrive within CBS, despite the ostensible victory at the end of the film. He's now completely aware of the rot at the core of the operation, and he has to leave to pursue his journalistic ambition elsewhere. So this is a film which isn't about journalism as a way of getting the truth broadcast or of informing the public for the better. It's a film which presents journalism as a power play between various corporations and various different publications. And the fact that Wigan's testimony eventually gets aired is almost something of a fluke. I thought one of the interesting things about how The Insider starts is that it also establishes um, man's visual approach. This is a film that operates both as a compelling sort of narrative and a thrilling story, even though a lot of what is being discussed is actually boring on the surface of it. But this is also a film that operates almost on an expressionist level of visuals. The very beginning of the movie is a shot from the perspective of Lowell Bergman with a burlap sack over his face. So we just see uh, some cloth for the first minute of the film. And all we hear uh, is the noise of like some, you know, foreign land, which turns out to be Lebanon in the movie. But we think that he's a hostage at the beginning of the movie. But in fact, He's just being delivered to an undisclosed location where he won't know where he is. Um, and it turns out that actually he's in semi-control of this situation. He's trying to arrange an interview. He's Once he gets the green light, he uh, throws open this giant curtain to see Beirut and, uh, and phones Mike Wallace to say, we're on. And, you know, you get the idea of like how powerful these people are. Like he can make a phone call and Mike Wallace gets on a plane from New York to Beirut uh, to do this big interview. But he's actually not in control of, of the actual world that he lives in, uh, unlike what he probably believes about himself. And he would have no reason not to believe that because he's you know working at 60 Minutes, the most important news magazine in television. Uh, at, at the time in 1999, this was a program that could change the conversation and the culture by what they broadcast. So, you know, he's due for a comeuppance in some ways because things are changing in culture and in terms of media, in terms of corporate ownership of uh, news divisions and the blurring of the lines between the news division and the business division, which we've seen metastasize into the world that we live in now. The insider was, uh, you know, there are elements of the insider that may seem naive now uh, to watch if you've never seen this movie before, because it places such an important idea about the power of journalism to change minds but we know better. You know, this is a movie where the big story uh, gets finally gets on the air at great cost to most of the people that were involved in putting the story on 
the air. But as we can see now, um, people consider the mainstream media to be a joke. And 60 Minutes went through even bigger problems in terms of their own reputation in, in the, during the Bush era. They were, uh, this was not the first time, nor was it the last time that they uh, had got embarrassed by a segment that they put on the air. And we also see in this movie, this, the stuff that's very scary about the film uh, is the smear campaign to destroy Wygand, which uh, seems to be playbooks for how people's reputations have been destroyed in the modern era and how you know, people like Donald Trump were able to sort of weaponize that kind of media apparatus that you can, you know, anybody says something terrible about you, you can just wreck their lives and discredit them. But we see stuff like that. And it seems so scary in 1999 that this could be happening. But what I think is very powerful at the insider now is that it kind of feels like standard operating procedure, like a preview of like the landscape that's been that's become even worse now in the internet age. This movie was made just before the internet was a bigger deal. You ever bounce a check, Lowell? You ever look at another woman's tits? You ever cheat a little on your taxes? Whose life, if you look at it under a microscope, doesn't have any flaws? Oh, that's the whole point, Jeffrey. That's the whole point. Anyone's, everyone's. They are going to look under every rock, dig up every floor, every mistake you've ever made. They are going to distort and exaggerate everything you've ever done, man. Don't you understand? What does this have to do with my testimony? That's not what the does point. it have to do with my testimony. You. I no, told the don't. truth. It's, it's not about telling true and proof. It's not the fucking point whether you told the truth or not. Hello? I want to talk a little bit about a minor character played by Rip Torn in this film. His name is John Scanlon, and he was based on a real public relations consultant. He was basically a crisis management expert. He was well-known in New York media circles. He was so good at PR that he could get uh, all the sort of connections that he'd made socially. Uh, he could use to get things on the air. And and his job was basically to be a pit bull um, in the film, he's hired by Brown and Williamson to publicly discredit Wygand, to spread all these stories that were being dug up about him. Some are true, but some are exaggerated. And Brown and Williamson gets ABC News and the Wall Street Journal uh, interested in this hit job that they have. I feel that the the John Scanlon character is a preview of the Steve Bannon types, the the, the people that uh, made so much bank and were able to finally become even more powerful in the last 10 years or so. At the time, I thought of this character as being kind of like a, another part of the big constellation of the story. But this time when I was watching it, it kind of felt like, God, guys like this are all over the place now. Like they're so powerful now. Yeah, and I think this is one aspect in which Wygand is naive about the media apparatus. He is worried that he'll be turned into a commodity by saying his testimony on CBS, but he doesn't think about the fact that the media apparatus is increasingly coming to work less as a way of shedding light on real issues and more as a way of packaging arguments mm -hmm. in a, an overtly ideological manner as kind of like a red team, blue team thing. So each journal and each news program, it has its team and it has what it wants to reinforce. And so it will go to any any level and any extent to gather information selectively to support that position. Mm -hmm. So in, increasingly in the film, Wyan just desperately yells, I was telling the truth. What is this matter? What is that matter? 
but he's just hit by the reality of the situation, which is if details from his life can be chosen selectively to make him look like a liar, it discredits his entire testimony and no one will care what he says about Big Tobacco. Bergman has a big revelation when he has a meeting with the lawyers of CBS where he realizes that the more true Wygant's testimony is, the more legal trouble they can get into as a company. Mm-hmm. If Brown and Williamson own the information, they can sue them more according to what level of true information is disclosed. So if Wygant isn't telling the truth, they're less legally culpable. And he says, this is Alice in Wonderland, this isn't journalism. But I feel like the idea that a station like CBS is there to objectively shed light on problems, that seems very antiquated now. Mm-hmm. The idea in the insider that the characters are only slowly realizing this, that seems quite quaint from today's perspective. I feel like now there's just more of a widespread acceptance that Fox News is here to do this. And it doesn't matter how much they twist the truth because the loyal Fox News fans will buy into anything that Fox News says. And indeed, they'll go to Fox News more to have their own biases and prejudices reconfirmed to them mm-hmm. than to have the actual facts stated. Yeah, I mean, I feel that like in this day and age, the modern news media is more like uh, people's soap operas, that people watch Fox News the way that they used to watch The Young and the Restless, and people might watch CNN the way that they used to watch Days of Our Lives. That, you know, there's a there's an ongoing narrative that is constantly being reinforced day in, day out, depending on what political stripe you are. The stuff that's going on in The Insider takes place in a media environment that wasn't quite as bad as it's turned into. And I think that that's one of the most profound things about watching The Insider 20 years later is seeing that uh, it was like the symptoms of a future disease being uh, presented to you in an artistic way as opposed to uh, a lecture. Like, I never forgot the concept of tortious interference, which I learned in this movie. (laughs) Like, you know a movie's cooking when uh, a legal term uh, is explained to you and it becomes something that you keep thinking about forever. But at the same time, it's also a beautifully made film, and it's uh, it has an incredible uh, perspective, and it accomplishes uh, you know a feeling of dread and paranoia throughout the film. And I think I want to segue here to ask you a little bit about um, this movie's relationship to '70s paranoia films. I think that a lot of movies that try to be like '70s paranoia movies fail. Very few movies, I feel, like stand alongside movies like The Parallax View and Clute and All the President's Men. And uh, I wanted to ask you a little bit about your thoughts on that. I think it's interesting that a lot of movies that do try to aid that style, the 70s paranoid thriller, they come across as being somewhat phony because they don't think about the changes in the political and media culture between then and now. So the idea of the lone individual going on a noble mission and gradually finding out, hold on, that there are aspects of the government which are corrupt and the media is colluding with them. If you try to simply recreate that now, it comes across as being so antiquated that it's like, it's only a throwback and it's seen as being only a throwback because it doesn't correlate to how people engage with the government and the media now. 
So I, you see it as being, okay, this is an homage to that kind of cinema. I think The Insider is successful in this regard because a man is very astute about how America in the 90s was different to the 70s and how the public's awareness of the uh, connections between the media and the state and the courts were very interconnected and they were very beholden to financial incentives and corporate interests. I think it's interesting in The Insider that the revelation that Brown and Williamson are using on safe practices to make nicotine, that's not positioned narratively as being a big revelation. If this was a more traditional paranoid thriller, I feel like that would be at the end or close to the end, or it would at least be like a scene where Wygand finds this out and it's a big climax, which reshapes his view of the company. But in The Insider, we're aware of this from the beginning, and the film is less about uncovering these state secrets or these corporate secrets, and more about just studying the ways in which the two protagonists navigate these environments and how they rationalize their involvement in these environments. Mm -hmm. Because a big deal with Wygand is that he at no point during the narrative ever thinks Brown and Williamson, they're a good company. They have the public's interest at heart. He took the job knowing that he was going to be asked to do things he wasn't comfortable with. He did it because he had a family to support and he wanted this idyllic middle-class life to a certain extent. He gradually becomes disillusioned with this and he's asked to do I feel like the extent of how unethical he's asked to be is something of a revelation to him, but it, it, he at no point thinks he's going to be doing anything innocent. Mm. And he's also against the wall because he has a daughter that has a has severe asthma. So yes. they've got him where they want him because the medical benefits that he gets. This is the big difference between Canada and America. We have a public health care system. In America, people find themselves having to do the jobs that they do because uh, of their needs, their health care needs. And so work and employment is tied to your health, which is, uh, you know, Canada has its problems too, but we don't have that fundamental problem that you, yeah. you have to do this job or else you, you will be in jeopardy in terms of your health. And even after Wigand is let off, his severance package includes continued health benefits so long as he doesn't spill any secrets about big tobacco. So even though he's not working for them anymore, they're still holding the health of his daughter over his head. Mm -hmm. There's a powerful moment in the movie where uh, Canada's own Colin Fiore plays uh, Richard Scruggs, who was a, a, a lawyer in Mississippi that convinces Wygan to testify at a deposition hearing on the, you know, the danger, the toxic uh, effects of uh, this nicotine boosting. Uh, so that once it's in the public record, that also makes it easier for 60 Minutes to air their piece. Because it, it's a way of getting around his confidentiality agreement. If he testifies in court, the, the confidentiality agreement doesn't apply. And if that public record comes out, then, then CBS can do the story. So 
but there's a great scene where where Colin Fior as Scruggs is explaining to Wygan that he understands the pressure that he's under. In combat, events have a duration of seconds, sometimes minutes. But what you're going through goes on day in, day out, whether you're ready for it or not. Week in, week out, month after month after month. Whether you're up or whether you're down. You're assaulted psychologically. You're assaulted financially, which is its own special kind of violence because it's directed at your kids. What school can you afford? How will that affect their lives? You're asking yourself, will that limit what they may become? You feel your whole family's future is compromised, held hostage. I do know how it is. What I think is so remarkable about The Insider as a movie is it forces uh, the audience to consider their own lives. Like you don't often see a thriller that actually makes you take a look at your own life and your own, uh, you know, the compromises that you're forced to make to <laughs> be in this society. And for a, uh, you know, Hollywood movie to sort of frame these questions to the audience is an example of man's radical um, man's radical gestures that are throughout this movie made by the Walt Disney Corporation. <laughs> so what's interesting about the narrative of the film, I think, is that we don't really follow Wygand from a position of ignorance to experience. He knows from the beginning how corrupt the tobacco industry is, and he knows that he wants to speak out against it. It's just every element tying him to Brown and Williamson um, his mortgage payments, the health of his daughter that he has to have, the continued health benefits for the welfare of his wife. All of that is positioned as something that will be jeopardized if he does what he knows is right and he tells the truth. Mm -hmm. So this idea that there's a clear-cut opposition between you can be part of the system and be complicit in it and be part of that corruption, or you can be outside it and you can be a hero, and you can be noble, it becomes very murky across the course of the film, where if Wygand simply breaks away from the tobacco industry, he's pretty much doomed his kids and his wife. So he can't just do that in a really clear-cut way. Mm -hmm. And this, I think, makes Bergman and Wygand really interesting, morally complex characters, because the choice for either of them isn't simple at all. Yes, and and Bergman is also operating under the idea that he's immune to these uh, things that Wigan has to face. Like Bergman, um, you know, this is a big story, and the, so much of this movie is about Bergman trying to convince a guy to come forward. But you know, ultimately, Bergman's just going to do another story next week, and the week after that, and the week after that. Like he's coasting on the idea that like he's bulletproof in terms of this stuff. This is all stuff for Wigan to have to deal with, not me. Yeah, and Wygand acknowledges this when he says to Bergman, am I just something to put on in between commercials? Wygand understands that Bergman is only interested in him to the point that he can get the show on the air and then he'll move on to the next subject. I want to take a couple of minutes to talk about the way that this movie was misunderstood. And, and that might have been uh, helped along by the fact that this film was very difficult to market. I watched an interview that Michael Mann did with Charlie Rose around the time this movie came out. 
And Rose asked Mann to quickly explain what the insider is about. And it took him about two minutes. And then he stopped himself and said, as you can see, uh, this movie is really hard to market. Uh, it takes a long time to explain what it's about. Um, Disney did the best they could. Uh, this was a time where Disney was, uh, was green lighting, interesting projects by auteurs, uh, everything from Kundun to he got game to the straight story to the inside. Kevin Smith's dogma and, and Kevin's let's not forget. Let's not forget. Uh, so, you know, they, they had a certain amount of support, but this movie flopped. It cost $90 million to make. It made something like 60 worldwide, 30 of that in the United States. It was nominated for seven Academy Awards, all the major uh, categories, although strangely not Christopher Plummer for Best Supporting Actor as Mike Wallace, a travesty. And the fact that it got nominated for seven Oscars made no difference to this movie's box office success. Like, it's not like it got a boost once the uh, award season uh, plaudits came around. It just didn't register with audiences. And maybe it's because people didn't quite know what it was about. But I want to read to you a very annoying uh, comments that Jason Reitman made about this. <laughs> around the time that Up in the Air was released, he made Thank You for Smoking, the movie that is sort of, I don't know if you've seen it, but it's a cynical- A film about how tobacco lobbying is actually good. A film that was executive produced by Peter Thiel and Elon Musk worth mentioning here. But this is a quote from Reitman. Uh, he was talking about thank you for smoking. One of the lines from the movie was, if you want an easy job, go work for the Red Cross. If you want a real job, go work for Big Tobacco. Reitman said, I have always kind of seen something in that, like making the insider is easy, right? It's like Big Tobacco is evil. Wow, what a statement. And here's another one from Reitman. In an interview with New York Magazine in 2009, the, the, the interviewer said, that Armand White of the New York Press opened his Up in the Air review with, Jason Reitman movies come in three forms. Rubbish, thank you for smoking. Crap, Juno. And Swill, Up in the Air. <laughs> That's a real heartbreaking worst person, you know, makes a great point. Moment. <laughs> I know. So Reitman said, well, I don't think he's going to like my fourth film any better. My films are polarizing. I don't want to tell my audience what to think. <laughs> thank you for smoking. Liberals thought it was theirs and conservatives thought it was theirs. And pro-lifers thought Juno was theirs and pro-choicers thought it was theirs. Up in the air has a similar divide, depending on what people think the ending of the movie means. I would be curious to hear what Armand White thinks of The Insider, a film that goes, <clears throat> smoking bad, tobacco people bad. And for me, that's so boring. But look, for some, that's the experience they want. And those movies exist for them. I want people to talk. So he's congratulating himself for being like the mushy middle, but he's also getting what the insider is about completely wrong. It is not an anti-tobacco movie. They don't say anything about whether or not you should smoke. They talk about how it's a public health risk, but the movie never tells you to stop smoking. Well, I have a couple of points to make about Jason Reitman's comments. First of all, I imagine Armand White does not like the insider, <laughs> but for different reasons to what Jason Reitman thinks. Secondly, I love the irony of Jason Reitman talking about the importance of allowing his films to let the audience decide their own minds when he's talking about Thank You for Smoking, a film which portrays a tobacco lobbyist in a positive light. And thirdly, yeah, The Insider, it focuses in on tobacco lobbying in specific, but it could be about any number of corporations and the way they manipulate and conceal and parcel out information. It is not a film about 
tobacco being a health risk, that is a very strange off-the-school special spin to put on a very complex film. What what I also find annoying about this uh, shallow take on The Insider from Jason Reitman is that he made a movie called The Front Runner a couple of years ago. He basically copies this scene where uh, Bruce McCall plays the lawyer who shuts down uh, my my hero Wings Hauser in the in the courtroom deposition scene in Kentucky. When I saw this movie, the entire theater jumped when he suddenly screamed at him. And um, Jason Reitman basically copied it. This campaign is about the future, not rumors, not sleaze. And I care about the sanctity of this process, whether you do or do not. Dr. Wagon's deposition will be part of this record. And I'm going to take my witness's testimony, whether the hell you like it or not. The irony, of course, as well, is that Michael Mann was a cigarette smoker. From a Michael Sergao interview with Mann that was in Salon, uh, Mann said, Eric Roth and I are both smokers. We were smoking at the bar at the Broadway Deli in Santa Monica while we wrote the screenplay. What this film is about is corporate power and malfeasance and huge businesses that are highly profitable, that are really in a drug trade. From their point of view, they have a wonderful business. They have a market addicted to their product. Mann stopped smoking before the insider went into production. And Jeffrey Wigand was sort of a, a sort of arm's length consultant on this film. He only visited the set twice. He had no say in the screenplay or the, the narrative, but he did have two requests. He wanted the names of his daughters in the movie to be changed. And he also wanted there to be no cigarette smoking in the movie. Um, there's a couple of people smoking in the background of three shots, but beyond that, you don't see smoking in this film. Some analysts said that The Insider had limited appeal to younger moviegoers. Studio executives reportedly said that the prime audience for this movie was over the age of 40 and that the subject matter was, quote, not notably dramatic, according to marketing executives. Reviews were all positive, but here's a clunker from Entertainment Weekly. They gave the movie a B, and their unnamed critic said, the movie which anatomizes the corporate media culture as an ominous vertical system presents CBS's decision to not run the story as the end of Western journalistic integrity as we know it, except that the system didn't fail. It triumphed. It was 60 minutes that failed. The Insider is a good but far from great movie because it presents truth-telling in America as far more imperiled than it is. Let's remember that this is the same publication that wouldn't assign a letter grade to Joker a couple of years ago because it was too irresponsible and dangerous a movie. That final statement has aged like a fine wine, hasn't it? <laughs> so naive to think, oh, come on, you're worrying too much, Michael Mann. It's like Michael Gambon <laughs> in the movie now. Don't be paranoid, Jeff. <laughs> Let's talk about Michael Gambon, actually, for a sec. I, he has a one-scene wonder in this movie. I mean, you see him testifying before Congress that smoking's not addictive. But uh, man wanted Michael Gambon in this movie to basically be the personification of the evil of a corporation. It's a wonderful scene. I like the two lawyers just sat ominously in the background surrounding Wygant, who have, I think, one line between them. <laughs> well, I had a big thrill when I watched the movie because um, we got to give a shout out to the casting director, Bonnie Timmerman 
who's populated this movie not only with uh, supremely well-cast lead performances, but all sorts of great character actors in small roles, like Bruce McCall uh, blows the the roof off the cinema in his couple of scenes. Wings Hauser plays a really scary tobacco lawyer. But the one uh, appearance that blew my mind was Gary Sandy, who played Andy Travis on WKRP in Cincinnati, is that scary lawyer in the background of the scene where Wygand (laughs) is uh, being uh, freaked out by by Thomas Sandifer, played by Michael Gambon. He's the one who says, you know, we will take action against you, Mr. Wigan, so you will act in your own best interest and you'll sign it. Uh, Gary Sandy was uh, wonderful on WKRP, and and I had not seen him ever since that show went off the air. And I just thought it was a, a brilliant move for Michael Mann to put these familiar, friendly faces from the old TV shows <laughs> as scary uh, corporate lawyers. <laughs> The other great thing about that scene is it's where uh, Wigan's bosses tell him that they're changing the conditions of the non-disclosure agreement so that it's entirely up to them to decide what information is above board for him to reveal and what isn't. So it's essentially telling Wigan that the agreement he signed when he was employed, that is no longer even really valid because they're changing the goalposts so much that he can't say a single thing about the company because they could have determined us to be libelous. Mm-hmm. And so for Jason Reitman to say that this is a film which tells the audience what to think and that, thank you for smoking, the positive film about the tobacco industry is for free speech <laughs> is quite remarkable. And part of the reason I'm here is that I felt that their representation clearly misstated, at least within Brown and Williamson's representation, clearly misstated what is common language within the company. We are in the nicotine delivery business. And that's what cigarettes are for. Delivery device for nicotine. A delivery device for nicotine. Put it in your mouth, light it up, and you're going to get your fix. You're going to get your fix. Let's talk about one of the other major key scenes in this movie, the scene where Wygand is interviewed by Mike Wallace for 60 minutes. But I wanted to talk to you what you think about the visual design of this scene. Cause I thought when I was watching it, that this was, a, you know, not only did this feel like the climax of most movies, like <laughs> this movie seemed like the big victory. We finally get Wygand on the air. But for me, the scene felt like um, the way that it was shown, the way that we see Wygand, and Mike Wallace, not only in the studio talking, but we see shots of the studio where they're filming it with various television sets from the various camera angles on them. And we also see gigantic close-ups of the television sets where we can also see what's being talked about in the in the, in the negative space on the on the on the image. This felt like this almost like this weird sacramental scene where Wygand is converted into a media figure. Where this is the moment where Wygand becomes less real. Uh, in terms of uh, his own life and more of a media commodity. Absolutely. And Man repeatedly returns to this wide shot where we see Wigand on the soundstage being interviewed. But the actual Wigand on the stage is in very shallow focus. But the close-up of Wigand on the television screen in the foreground is in very sharp focus. So that quite explicitly visually articulates this idea that Wigand the man is fading away and we're going to have Wigand the media image through the rest of the film. And indeed, for the rest of the film, Wigand as a character, he's no longer as prevalent as 
Bergman and the various employees of CBS as they're discussing what to do with him, as they're editing the interview to serve their own interests, and as various different news corporations are spinning competing narratives about Yand, which are disconnected from the man himself. Mm-hmm. So this centerpiece sequence is the point where we're no longer following Wygand as this protagonist struggling to sum up the courage to air his testimony. We see him converted into an image to be manipulated and to be reworked and reproliferated to serve the interests of various opposing people, many of whom have never actually met mm-hmm. him. Yeah, he becomes, this is the moment where once he's now agreed to go on 60 Minutes, now he can be used in this deposition hearing, which the ultimate goal of it is not only to collect his testimony, but to break his confidentiality agreement. It's to clear the decks for CBS to finally be able to air this program. And they're under the impression that they can do what they want. They just need the green light, (laughs) you know, the social green light. Once it's in the public record, it can be talked about on television. That's our main goal. It doesn't even occur to them that uh, CBS corporate could say not so fast. Because in in the actual world of this movie, CBS was um, in the middle of a big sale to Westinghouse. And I believe that Brown and Williamson uh, had a controlling interest in that sale to the point that if they wanted to sue CBS uh, for libel, uh, they could wind up owning CBS. And it's they don't mention this in the movie, but also in a few months earlier in 1995, ABC was hit with a $10 billion libel suit from Philip Morris over a story that they aired on World News Tonight or 2020 about deceptive practices and and interference of the uh, integrity of the product of uh, cigarettes and spiking the, the nicotine. Um, they wound up settling for uh, several million dollars, and they also had to apologize for it on the air. Interestingly, Michael Mann filmed a a line of dialogue that acknowledged this in the film, which he decided not to put in the movie for um, continuity issues. But people at ABC News, who were, who by the way, were owned by Walt Disney Corporation, encouraged Mann to include that scene as an example of the fact that ABC News was uh, independent of Walt Disney. Uh, I found that interesting that they were like, put that line in the movie so that the audience will know that we're our own thing. Uh, that we are uh, not just doing what Disney's saying. But one of the other knocks against the insider in, in media circles was that, that ABC was making this movie to get payback on CBS, that, uh, you know, we're going to do a movie that makes 60 minutes look bad. And this was one of the weird things that Don Hewitt, the, the senior producer at CBS, said when they asked him about this movie. Because Don Hewitt and Mike Wallace were very upset at the portrayal of their performance in the middle of this situation where um, where CBS had to back down and, and do an, an edited, sanitized version of the story to avoid uh, you know getting sued. Like they look like weaklings in those scenes. And uh, Bergman is the hero in, 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 in this movie. And these guys are the guys who just do what the lawyers tell them to do. And they don't stand by their journalism. Don Hewitt was very angry about this movie and the portrayal of the incident. And I found this interview with him in the Washington Post in 1999, where Don Hewitt said, this was a corporate blunder. 
in terms of the decision not to air the report as scheduled. Nobody here at 60 Minutes was in agreement with the corporation. Short of a bunch of gorillas with guns taking over the CBS transmitters, there was no way for us to put this on the air that first time. CBS owns the means of getting that story to the public. And he alleged that the insider was a vendetta between ABC and CBS over these libel suits. Like ABC was embarrassed by this and they wanted to sort of shove it in CBS's face that they also had to deal with this too. And this is a hot quote from Don Hewitt. ABC News is in a life and death struggle with 60 Minutes, said Hewitt. Who owns ABC News? Disney. Who made the movie? Disney. Who keeps ABC News from doing a story about pedophilia at Disney theme parks? Disney. It's like the point of the movie is that you guys blinked and backed down and didn't support your reporters and that you did what the corporate lawyers did. Uh, And the just don't like the fact that this has been dramatized. Yeah, and I also love the idea of viewing the film in such a microscopic manner that you see it as only being an attack on CBS and not the wider media scape as a whole. Yeah. Like anyone can walk away from that thinking, having more faith in ABC. (laughs) Yeah, it's such a reductive way of looking at it because of their own bruised egos. Philip Baker Hall, the, the late great Philip Baker Hall, plays Don Hewitt and plays him very well. And, and we have to give uh, a big shout out to how good Christopher Plummer is as Mike Wallace in this yes. movie. I love, I mean, I've always liked Christopher Plummer, but I, when I heard that the insider was on the way and that Christopher Plummer was playing Mike Wallace, I was so excited. He has so many great scenes in this movie. He actually looks and sounds just like Mike Wallace. And I wanted to hear what you think about Plummer in this film. Plummer is so good in this movie. He makes me have sympathy for Mike Wallace, which is no easy feat. <laughs> I really love the scene near the ending in the hotel room where Mike Wallace goes to Bergman and tells him about how fundamentally hurt and betrayed he feels about the fact that Bergman has revealed his actions and the whole operations of CBS during the production of the Wigan episode and how he's worried that this is going to tarnish his legacy after so many years of ostensibly valiant journalistic work. And I mean, I think that Mike Wallace is presented as being very delusional but also you have so much empathy for him in that moment which is entirely down to Plummer's performance in the real world when you get to where i am there are other considerations like what corporate responsibility are we talking celebrity here i'm not talking celebrity vanity cbs i'm 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 talking about when you're near the end of your life in the beginning and what do, you, what do you think you think about them? The future? In, in the future, I'm going to do this, become that? What future? No. What you think is, how will I be regarded in the end? After I'm gone. It should be noted that Michael Mann and Lowell Bergman were friends. Before this story, uh, the, the story depicted in this movie took place, they already knew each other. They were working on a project together at the time about an Armenian arms dealer who was like a real character. Uh, I guess Lowell Bergman met him along the way on his worldwide travels. And they were developing a treatment for an idea about that. While they were working on it, though, Lowell Bergman was going through what he went through trying to get the Jeffrey Wigand story on the air. And he was telling man all about it while it was happening. And when Bergman told man that CBS had actually like kiboshed the story and, and done a sanitized version of it and had locked him out of the process, man said, well, this 
forget the arms dealer movie. We should be doing this. But they never actually started working on it as a project until 1996. But Mike Wallace alleged that Bergman had been leaking the details of what was going on inside their shop, not only to the New York Times, but to Michael Mann himself, and that they were planning on making a movie about it at the time, which is actually not true. But later when they actually, uh, when it did turn into a project, Mike Wallace contacted Michael Mann about it. He got a copy of the manuscript that was the basis of the screenplay. And he had some things removed. For instance, at the beginning of the movie, when Bergman is on the phone with Wallace setting up the interview with the Hezbollah leader, Wallace asks Bergman if the hotel that they'll be putting him up in in Beirut has a jacuzzi. And Wallace wanted that line removed. And for the scene where Mike Wallace says, I don't plan to spend the rest of my days wandering in the wilderness of national public radio, Mann said that they changed the line because originally uh, Wallace had said, I'm not going to spend the end of my days wandering in the wilderness like Walter Cronkite. <laughs> so uh, so Mann and Wallace were having arguments over the phone over this developing project to the point that Mann actually used some of the stuff that Wallace said to him on their conversations in the screenplay. <laughs> That incredible scene where he's talking about how, you know, what they'll remember you for is what you did last and all that. One of the reasons why that dialogue sounds so much like Mike Wallace in the movie is because it's basically a transcript, which is a really <laughs> hot move for man to do. And um, anyway, but but it's it's pretty funny that Mike, that Mike Wallace thought that uh, this was so unfair. You know, <laughs> like how could you? And the lines he wanted removed were quite innocuous. Yeah compared to some of the things he says and does in the movie. But I want to ask you about one very strange moment in this movie and how you feel about it. I don't know whether it works for me, which is this movie that has been so realistic and so true to life and so um, authentic. All of a sudden, there's this very strange, surreal scene in Wygan's hotel room, which I'd like to get you to paint a picture for so this is after the censored version of the 60 Minutes episode with the heavily, heavily redacted version of Wygand's interview airs on TV. And we see a despondent Wygand in his hotel room, imagining the walls blur into a fantasy of him with his daughters in a domestic space. So it's... It is uh, pretty much his visualization at this low point of everything he could have retained if he hadn't decided to blow the whistle. I like the sequence because I think that this vision of domestic bliss is so idealistic that we can't really read it as being what his life would actually be like. And I like that it looks completely different from every other scene we've seen with Wygan and his wife and his daughters in the film. It's lit differently. The actual yard that in it doesn't look like any of the homes he's actually owned in the film. Mm-hmm. And just whenever we see Wygan with his wife and his daughters, they're always extremely stressed. And he is in his own world. The very first scene we see with him and his family, it's after he's been fired, him walking into the house, pouring himself a glass of whiskey and just silently ignoring the kids and hiding the fact that he got fired from his wife and at the earliest opportunity, leaving to try to go drive somewhere. So I think it's just, again, it shows that Wygan's way of rationalizing his involvement with tobacco, it doesn't correspond with the reality it's, as Bergman points out, Wygant has a 
bit of a victim complex where when anything goes wrong, he tries to blame an external factor. And he doesn't like taking responsibility all the time. So at this moment, immediately after this fantasy, he yells at he yells at Bergman over the phone and he accuses Bergman of manipulating him and coercing him into giving this testimony which he allegedly didn't want to give, which is complete garbage because Wigand is the first one to mention to Bergman, yeah, I know some secrets about Brown and Williamson, but I'm not going to tell you that to use on 60 Minutes. And he's just constantly returning to Bergman and giving him a bit more each time. It's good to show Wigand at his most pathetic and his most desperate. And the fact that this fantasy is quite distinct from the rest of the film visually reinforces that. Yeah, it, I, I just wasn't sure what to make of it at the time. It's like the way that it sort of morphs uh, from the hotel room into this, you know, pastoral weird uh, fantasy of him in the backyard with his children sort of reminded me of the sort of cheesy 90s uh, morphing in like a Snoop Dogg video. Yeah. <laughs> like it just seemed uh, straight visually at odds. I mean, I know that it's supposed to represent like madness and uh, and, uh, you know, and and again, the sort of the victimization that he feels about himself, not uncalled for either. Um, you know, yeah. because this is a man who's been receiving bullets in the mailbox and death threats in emails and, uh, you know, scary guys following around the golf course and uh, scary guys coming up to him at the airport. And, you know, like he's he's lost it. And this is like the only part of the movie that actually like departs from the real world. Yeah, he's definitely a victim of many external forces. But I think... The thing about Wigand is that he wouldn't have ever felt comfortable living the domestic life built on rotten money. And in this scene, he's almost seems to be wishing that he could return to that, which is incongruous with how we've actually seen him in that environment. Like he has a professional need to go and spill this information and give this testimony. And he would not feel fulfilled if he didn't at least try to do that. And I think that he's lying to himself, the character that is, if he thinks that if he hadn't embarked on this journey, he would have felt anything like happiness. I've talked a lot on this show about dudes rock cinema. <laughs> and I think that uh, The Insider is a major dudes rock classic in terms of uh, these two professional men who uh, become friends and who support each other through tough times. And uh, even if they don't always get along, there's like a respect that they have for one another and they, they sort of make each other stronger. To me, that's what Dudes Rock is really about. And one of the great Dudes Rock moments in movies, beyond the, the, the screaming matches that they have, where they have most of those screaming matches that they have on the phone end with some kind of weird begrudging respect for one another. The big dude's rock moment in the movie for me is the scene where Wigand has to decide whether or not to testify. The, the, the deposition hearing in Mississippi is taking place and their star witness hasn't arrived and they're wondering whether or not he's going to be there. And Wigand is looking out across the Gulf and deciding whether or not to do this. And, and, and then, and he walks back to Bergman and says that I don't have the criteria to make a decision. And, and Bergman says, well, maybe things have changed. And he says, yeah, things have changed. And, and he says, since, since this morning. And he says, no, since whenever. 
And then he just stands there for a second and just thinks and thinks. And you can almost see the wheels turning in, in Crow's head. Like he's so good in this film. And then he finally just says, fuck it, let's go to court. And I read a very touching comment that Mann said about uh, the motivations of the character that Wygand felt like he was at this like crossroads where if he didn't testify, if he decided to take the easy way out and to sort of, you know, live up to the agreement that he'd made with Brown and Williamson and have a much easier life that a very important part of himself would go away. And he just, he bets on himself in that scene, even if that makes things so much like his wife leaves him for making this decision. Uh, but uh, it's the right thing to do. And it's in keeping with his moral character. And he has the dudes with him who are going to support him <laughs> when he makes the right decision, and that and th and then they're um, they're driving to the deposition hearing, and and we see another beautiful abstract image moment in this movie where they're passing all these uh, they're passing a graveyard, a cemetery, and you see all the the crosses, and they almost start strobing like as the camera's going past. The incredible photography by Dante Spinotti. And, and it also has this sort of like um, um, semiotic sort of image, like all those crosses that are passing the graves are like all the people that have died of cancer to me, you know, like, it's just like the idea that like, that he's doing the right thing. And that, you know, there's this gigantic legacy in America of like the wrong thing being done all the time in the name of business. Uh, it's just such a great scene. And he's never driving any of these points that he's making home. As a filmmaker, so many filmmakers want you to basically understand what he's trying to get at, but man somehow manages to get this through abstract imagery. There's another great dude's rock moment later in the film I'd like to mention. It's immediately after the censored version of 60 Minutes as, as man intercuts between Wygand and Bergman watching it looking incredibly despondent. And Wygand is in his hotel room just completely, completely out of it, refusing to open the door, refusing to acknowledge the hotel workers when they knock on the door. Adam Bergman is trying desperately to get him on the phone. Adam Bergman's signal keeps cutting out because he's walking along a beach, and so he has to walk into the ocean to the point where he's up to his waist in water. Mm -hmm. And finally, Wygand answers the phone because Bergman has told the hotel concierge to scream at Wygant to answer the fucking phone. Yeah. And, they, and the guy's <laughs> like, I can't say that. And he's like, yes, you can. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and so Wygant gets on the phone and they have this screaming match, which begins with Wygant blaming Bergman and then Bergman telling Wygant basically that they're both in the same boat and they're both the exact same type of man. And that neither of them would feel fulfilled or comfortable unless they went on this ethical voyage, mm -hmm. even though they may never win. Just the mere fact that they're willing to do it and willing to put everything on the line for it is what unites them. And what and Bergman says to Wygand, I'm running out of heroes, man. People like you are in short supply. And Wygand says, yeah, guys like you too. And I feel like that could be maybe the thesis statement for all of man's cinema. I think you could fit it into almost any one of his films. Absolutely. And, you know, like that's, that is pure dude's rock too. Like, like that <laughs> sometimes you need another dude to help you be a better dude. <laughs> and these two guys 
who are diametrically opposed to each other culturally, socially, uh, in terms of their ethics, and in terms of uh, the, the 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 living up to their actual ideals, and also people who who think that they're living up to their ideals and find out through yeah. their run in with a different kind of person that there's more work to be done. Uh, yeah, it's just, it's an incredible movie. And, and for me, that's what dudes rock cinema is all about. Uh, and, and, and with the dudes rock mentality in mind, watching the insider again, I was like, yeah, this is a dudes rock. This is like crucial dudes rock cinema to me. <laughs> and maybe what we should also say as we wrap up our conversation is, uh, well, first of all, I want to say that Russell Crowe is incredible in this movie. Like he became a movie star a year later with Gladiator. He won the Oscar for Gladiator. He should have won the Oscar for this. It's a, a, it's a travesty that American Beauty won all the awards that year and The Insider won nothing. It's a travesty that Kevin Spacey won Best Actor instead of Russell Crowe for The Insider. Um, and I wanted to tell you one amazing thing I found out is that when Marlon Brando died, Russell Crowe received a book from the Marlon Brando estate because Brando was a huge fan of this movie and of Crowe's performance. And he instructed his caretaker to send him this book of Patrick Kavanaugh poetry wow. that Brando had received inscribed from Jack Nicholson. So he wanted Russell Crowe to know how much Brando loved him in this movie. That's incredible. I didn't know that. <laughs> like it's an amazing performance. He, uh, you know, and Pacino as well. Like, I, I don't think I've ever liked him more in a movie. Um, he has a couple of Vincent Hanna freakouts in the movie, but they're earned. They don't seem ridiculous because he's been playing it so close to the chest and he's been so quiet and calm and funny throughout the movie. It, it, when he starts to hit the roof towards the last third of the movie, it feels completely earned and it's very, very funny and it's very, very uh, in keeping with the story. Like it's a natural response <laughs> for all the shit that these people have been having to deal with for the entire plot. When he's freaking out, carrying a copy of the Wall Street Journal. You fucked us! No, you fucked you! Don't invert stuff. Big Tobacco tried to smear Wigand. You bought it. The Wall Street Journal, here. Not exactly a bastion of anti-capitalist sentiment refutes Big Tobacco's smear campaign as the lowest form of character assassination. And now, even now, when every word of what Wigand has said on our show is printed... The entire deposition of his testimony in a court of law in the state of Mississippi, the cat totally out of the bag, you're still standing here debating. You couldn't make a movie like The Insider now that would get a theatrical release in the state that we're in now in terms of cinema going. Like The Insider wouldn't be made for $90 million now, and it certainly wouldn't have been put out by the Walt Disney Corporation. This feels like a movie that would go to streaming now, even though, as well, it's pure cinema. I hope you get a chance to see this movie in a theater sometime. I think that uh, it, people have been starting to get around to it, like it gets shown at Michael Mann retrospectives, and I think it blows audiences away, like on the level of a movie like Heat, which is more uh, self-consciously a theatrical experience. My joke is that the insider is like heat without the big machine gun fight in the middle. It's almost all talking, but it is spellbinding and thrilling. I don't know. I just think across the board on every measurable level, this movie is a masterpiece. Uh, and I think that it also paves the way for the future of Michael Mann's filmmaking career. Like as he went into digital cinema, as he went into abstract exp you know, expressionism in the storytelling, like, he really ramped it up in The Insider. And I think of all of the important Michael Mann movies, this 
feels to me like the one that has been neglected the most and needs to be caught up to. Absolutely. I think because it comes at a transitional period between his more dramatically classical work and his later more experimental digital work, it tends to get overlooked. It slips through the cracks, but it is absolutely vital to understanding man's wider body of work. James, before we go, I'm, I'm very uh, happy that you've put out this book, and I wanted to give you a chance to tell my listeners about your book about Michael Mann. So Times Like the Cinema of Michael Mann is really an exploration of Mann's entire filmography from the Jericho Mile all the way through to Black Hat, mostly through the lens of technology and social advancements and changes in criminal and policing practices in relation to technology. I think that these are central issues to Mad's body of work. And I think that if you look at his films through that lens, it opens up new dimensions. Yeah, if you look, for example, at Thief and how relatively antiquated the organization of the mafia is, and then you go to Heat, where there are these bigger crime syndicates, all the way through to Miami Vice, where the mafia that they're trying to take down, it operates exactly like the FBI and the Miami police. Uh, all the way through to Black Hat, where it becomes about cybercrime and the fact that crimes can be committed on a mass scale without any of the criminals actually needing to physically be in the locations that they're committing these crimes in. You can have uh, mass chaos caused by a few keystrokes. So my book is really looking at how these developments attract throughout Michael Mann's cinema and what it reveals about America and how he engages with these classical American genres like the gangster film and the heist picture to uh, critically interrogate how these transformations on a social, political, and cultural level are manifested through technology and policing and crime. Yeah, I mean, and I, I really enjoyed your chapter on The Insider. It really spurred me on to uh, do additional research on myself for the show. I do agree with you that this movie is central to understanding. The radical gestures that man makes in a lot of his films is like front and center in this movie. It can be admired as a thriller. It could be admired as a character study. It could be admired as abstract expressionism. Uh, and it also uh, really, it, it's not um, dated. You know, there are some elements of it that are a little dated, like everybody's on the phone all the time. Unlike our world today, nobody's on the internet in this movie. But um, it really does have a lot to say about the future of media and the future of American society and the, uh, the stranglehold that corporations have on our lives uh, and that he was able to get a corporation to do this movie, a very Godardian, uh, <laughs> very Godardian of, of man to get Walt Disney to make this. James, where can people find you on Twitter? I'm on Twitter at, at JM Slaymaker because at J Slaymaker was already taken. 
Uh, or you could just search my name, James Slaymaker, is my username I come on. And I'll also put a link to your book, Time is Luck, The Cinema of Michael Mann, in the show description. I would encourage my listeners to check it out. And it was a pleasure having you on the show. You've been on uh, two weeks in a row, actually. <laughs> I've been wanting to have you on the show for a while. And this episode was already planned, but then Godard passed away and we had to uh, fast track that. So thank you so much for being my guest two weeks in a row, James. Oh, no problem. It was great being back twice. Talking about very comparable filmmakers. I'm sure that Godard loved Michael Mann, although I don't have any hard evidence for that. I would be heartbroken if I found out that Godard <laughs> thought Michael Mann was a hack. <laughs> I know that Claire Denny loves Michael Mann and once shrunk away when a critic compared her to Michael Mann because she was like, oh no, I'm nowhere near the level of Michael Mann. James Slaymaker, thank you for joining me, and please come back anytime. You're always welcome. Yeah, I'd love to be back. Hopefully not when another giant of cinema dies. But yeah, no, I'll uh, maybe I'll... Yeah. <laughs> this, is, this is the future of my show, unfortunately. It's going to become wall-to-wall RIP episodes. <laughs> I just appear whenever someone great dies. <laughs> it's like, James, somebody's I'm, dead. <laughs> come yes, on the show. I'm the angel of death for cinema, yeah. <laughs> Before we go, just a reminder that we do have a Patreon, and patrons help to make Junk Filter possible. There are additional Michael Mann episodes available on the Patreon feed, as well as dozens of other bonus episodes. To become a patron, please go to patreon.com slash junkfilter. And please follow us on Twitter at junkfilterpod. The original music for this program was provided by Marker Starling. My name is Jesse Hawken, and thank you for listening. <laughs>